and continuing in our discussion of prologue to Revelation. Uh, I'll go ahead and begin us with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us today, for another day to freely worship you, to gather together, free of almost all persecution, free of legal hindrance, really. Lord, let us not ever take for granted that situation. I pray that as these days are here, we would use them to advance your gospel, to advance your kingdom. Lord, to grow in maturity so that if those days ever pass and things change, we would stand firm, we would be overcomers, that we would walk in a way worthy of you. So we bless your name tonight. Pray that you would speak. I admit inadequacies. And Lord, I know that only through your spirit can we really learn what you're having to say to us. So we bless your name and we we give you thanks and praise through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I'm actually going to begin with churches today. Uh, We've left behind chapter 1 and left, I'm sure, many things undone and unsaid, but we'll go ahead and begin our discussion of the churches, and maybe we'll get past Ephesus, maybe. So as you all are aware, we're talking about the opening of the Revelation, and we're in chapter 2, and so I'll begin by reading the first uh, first couple of messages that Jesus sends to the churches. We just left this vision that John has, and we discussed how it was in the order of the Son of Man visions that Daniel had, and there was more I would have would have liked to have said, but The point was basically that in order to really get the experience that John was having and he's trying to communicate, we have to look toward the Old Testament to to understand what's going on. And we really have to see that John is having an experience that's similar to these Old Testament visionary prophets who are seeing these last days being described by the Lord. And that we have to look back there to get the imagery. So while many interpreters may think that they have a key to the image in in modern day events or things of that nature, really where we need to be looking is into the Old Testament and not into our televisions or our newspapers. All right, so now the Bible. Chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bear up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, sorry, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where, you're, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So pause there and take a look at this. So these churches to whom Jesus is speaking or directing his communication are seven historical churches in historical cities in the region of Asia Minor here, right in there. And zoomed in, we can see, here I think I zoomed it. yeah, there we go. We can zoom it in and see that it begins here in Ephesus, the series, and then he basically walks up the coast and then follows this road down in the order. So a couple weeks ago, someone had asked, what's up with the order? Well, we don't really know exactly what's up with the order, but Ephesus was a major important city, major port city right there, and it just seems that Jesus, when he's talking to them, picks an order that just goes up the coastline and then follows this road down through. So why he did it that way, not really sure, but that seems a probable answer. In fact, Ephesus, where we... be where we begin was probably the largest city in Asia Minor at the time that the book was written. It competed in size with uh, Pergamum and I think Mita Miletus here in the south. They tended to go back and forth in size, but basically Ephesus was considered one of the largest cities in the area. It was a major center of pagan worship, and we'll take a look at some of that. And a very important home to emperor worship cult on the main hill just above the Agora, there was this huge temple to Domitian at this time, or emperor cult uh, temple. So it appears that he starts at Ephesus and works around clockwise. We know that Paul lived there for a couple of years in the early part of the 50s during one of his missionary tours, and that after he left... There was a series of rotating pastors, evangelists, major figures in early first century Christianity who rotated through and took, took time there. So it may be that Jesus picks it as this sort of hub outside of the ancient Near East, this major uh, center of Christian growth outside of the Palestine area. It also may be that it was an area where John had particular oversight. A lot of commentators seem to think that John had this sort of uh, multi-campus sort of archbishopric where he was he was overseer of all of these churches in this area. So the reason why these seven churches, well, because it would have spoken most to John. John would have had a lot to do with that. So that's why he, he did that for John. But we know that there were other churches in the area, and it's not as though it's like the the modern United States where no matter where you go in the U.S., more or less, every rural town has, if it has a stop sign and a post office, then it's got a church of some kind or another. It wasn't like that back then. Paul strategically, as he planted churches through Asia Minor, went to large metropolitan areas, which seems in, in a lot of ways counterintuitive to us, but because we usually don't do that when we want to go reach people. We go to the middle of nowhere and reach out and translate a Bible and things like that. But he went to the largest place he could get, set up camp, get as many believers as he could, and then sent them out to those areas. 
So it makes sense in, in that respect that he would pick major points along ports and major traffic areas and that those were the places where they were. But we know that there were other churches like, uh, let's go back, like that name ought to look familiar, Colossae, that we know there was a major Pauline church right there and still not selected to have by Jesus to be spoken to. So we, we don't know exactly why these churches and not others, but we know he picked seven historical churches to, to have communication with. So maybe it was that John was not, maybe Colossae was not part of his oversight, but it's hard to answer. So what do we do with that? That we have Jesus communicating a grand revelation to the Apostle John, and he picks these seven churches and not others. What are some approaches to, well, why seven churches? Why these? Well, one is to say that, well, it just applies to those seven churches. What Jesus is about to say to those seven churches, those historical assemblies of believers, well, it applies to them. Jesus was talking to them. And so that's what it's good for. Those people should listen up and pay attention. No matter how much it may or may not apply to us. Well, if the assumption I stated a couple weeks ago is correct, that this book was intended to be meaningful to its readers from the time of its writing forward, then messages from Jesus surely are for and about the churches named. Granted. But at the end of each message, as we read just a minute ago, Jesus tells the reader to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. We'll come back to that statement again later, but for now, at least this much seems clear. Although each message is about a particular historical church of the first century, each message is for all the churches, at least on some level. So that's one problem with just saying, hey, it's just for those churches named. Another option and common interpretive method is to historicize these churches, which is to say, we look back now and we have centuries of history between then and, and us, and many futurists will take, and by futurists I mean people who interpret the book of Revelation as largely having to do with a time after the apostle uh, John was writing. Futurist approaches, this is one way that they deal with it, not, not every, just one way, that each church in this order represents some historical period going forward. So they divide up, and, and Ephesus is the ancient one, and then, of course, Laodicea at the very end is our time somehow, that each one has some historical measure. And so they divide it up in varying ways. Well, there are lots of problems with that approach. One is that as time moves on, well, these interpreters have to find a new way to spread out the time evenly among seven and some way that somehow fits the characteristics of each of these churches. So in another century, they'll do it again in a different way, and it's been happening for a couple hundred years that way. So it's highly problematic because it's a, it's, a, it's, a it's a moving target, and they're always adjusting it. Another, way, another reason why it's a problem is it's highly idiosyncratic. At every age, every 50 years, or whatever great scholar takes this approach, it's always his time that is Laodicea and is almost to be spit out of Jesus' mouth. And it's, and it's always, previously it was great, but our time, man, the church is just a wreck. Also, it's a highly subjective approach because interpreters will tend to look at the churches only in their regions of the world in order to make the evaluation of which one is doing well and which, which time it's doing well. A German scholar looks at Europe and goes, oh man, Europe's a train wreck, this must be Laodicea. Or, hey, an American says, oh, America's totally secular, it's, the church is totally gone, it must be Laodicea, that sort of thing. So you get this highly subjective. And it also denies our assumption that the book would be immediately relevant and useful to believers of the first century. It's like Jesus said, here's all this information about the future that will have nothing to do with you. Enjoy that. I reject that approach also. A third option is that, and this is the approach I tend to take, and I think is a little more orthodox, we'll say, because there's lots of, we've admitted that we can't nail it down 100%, and there's lots of good godly opinion on this, but 
the more accepted or frequent way to approach it is that these are assemblies of believers that are contemporary with John who are chosen as symbolic representatives of all churches, both in that age and in the future. So why is Colossae left out? Well, Jesus wanted seven churches to represent all of the churches in that age and in ages to come. So he didn't need to pick ten. Could have picked ten, he just didn't. How do I come to that? Well, one uh, important way, besides the ways I've, I've mentioned the problems with the other, is that the number seven is highly symbolic. Throughout the Bible and throughout the book of, of Revelation, many numbers, in fact, have symbolic meaning in the Bible, and I am no biblical numerologist. I think it only goes so far, and then you need to stop not into Bible codes. I, I haven't looked at it closely, so I don't know how much. I can't argue against it, but that's not me. That's not where I'm going with this. But we all, I think anyone who's read fairly thoroughly through the, the Bible understands that there's a certain set of numbers that recur regularly. 3, 7, 10, 12, 40. There's a group of them that show up over and over and over and over again, and usually with some significance. And if they don't begin with significance, they accrue significance as the Bible progresses, as the revelation, as revelation is given. Uh, not the book, but the principle. Revelation, as God reveals himself uh, through scripture, those numbers acquire certain amounts of significance and very early on. Seven itself is repeated over and over again in the book of Revelation. We have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven woes, seven heads and tails on different creatures, seven hills, uh, seven spirits before the throne of God, and seven lampstands. And seven's pretty common in this book. It is unlikely that this is to be taken in the strictest literal numerical sense, and more to be understood as some sort of symbolic reference. So what symbolic reference does it have? Scholars and Bible readers for a long time have agreed that somehow seven has this idea of completeness or perfection or fulfillment, something of that fullness, something in its totality. They tend not to say where they get that. They just usually say that's what it is and then expect you to just believe them. So I'll take just a minute to go through some of why that might be correct, because I agree that that is generally true. So if we look at the Genesis account and creation in particular, it's accomplished in, inside of seven days, that the, number, the seventh day is very important, and that at seven God rested, and it was all, he rested from his labors. It was done. It was complete. We know, for example, that in Joshua 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 5, that, well, I'll just read it. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times in the priests, and so you get the idea. And then it happens on the seventh day after marching around seven times with seven priests with seven horns. Seven seems to end the deal. Whatever's going on, seven seems to be the, the full measure of it. And then we see it again in the New Testament. In Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Then Peter came up and said to him, being Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like, that's the full measure, right? It doesn't get any more forgiving than to forgive him seven times. Okay? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven times. Super more than perfect done and over. That's how you're supposed to forgive your brother. The idea of the number seven having this meaning of f the full extent or the full measure or the complete amount runs throughout the Bible. So that's how I arrive at that conclusion. I think a lot of, a lot of uh, Bible teachers arrive at that conclusion that what we're dealing with here is Jesus picking seven historical churches that really were there, really had an assembly of believers, and using them as the full representation of the church, both in that age and in ages to come. Now, 
for his message form. We uh, read three of them. The first thing to note is, unlike the Revelation itself, these do not follow the convention of the standard Greco-Roman epistle, where you have Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, to such and such person, grace and peace to you. Jesus doesn't exactly follow that. He does uh, give you some of those pieces, but really most, most teachers and scholars find somewhere between five and seven recurring components of these. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to lose your salvation if you say five instead of seven. It's okay. Just pick these because it seems to me as I read them that that's basically what's going on between my own reading and commentaries and, and studies that I've read. It seems to be more or less what's going on. And we can see these. They're fairly identifiable if we just look again at chapter 2, verses 1, to the church of the, uh, sorry, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So we have this command to write. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Okay, so then we have this command to write. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. There we have this, this self-description. Jesus describes himself, usually taking it from what we read in chapter 1. In chapter 1, John has this vision of Jesus walking in the midst of lampstands and holding seven stars. Jesus then explains what he, say, what he sees. Knowing that John's going to write this all down, he can now use this. It seems to, This one in particular seems to be a rather unique representation of the Lord. That I don't think personally, and I didn't read anywhere where anyone else said it, that somehow the Ephesian church... When he, if he had just written, this is, these are the words of the one who stands in the midst of the seven lampstands and holds the seven stars. No one seems to think, oh yeah, the Ephesians would have got that. Like that would have, they, would have, they would have all known what he was doing there. So it made sense that in the previous chapter when John had the vision, John called it a mystery. And Jesus told him, what, hey, the mystery of these seven lamps and seven stars is the following. So then, he, so then they, that explains it. So there's a self-description of Jesus, and then there's a commendation, and it's a rather lengthy one here in verses 2 and 3. And then some rebuke for sin that we see in verse 4. I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you first had, your first love. And then there's some corrective action or keep doing what you're doing, either sustain or correct, depending on whether or not he didn't rebuke, because some churches don't receive it. So there's the corrective action. Remember where you came, uh, where you've fallen from, repent. So there's the corrective action. And then the promise. In this, in this case, the promise is also a judgment. So it's promise or judgment that if you don't, I'll come and do this. Then ending up with an overcomer statement and the exhortation for the reader to heed what Jesus is saying. So we'll go over that in more detail for the Ephesus message. The pieces don't always come in exactly the same order, although they generally follow that pattern. And not all the churches have all seven components. So Smyrna and Philadelphia, they get no rebuke whatsoever. Laodicea receives no commendation. Some of them don't have the pieces, and some scholars have even kind of understood it this way. So let's see here. Ephesians... And then the next one is Pergamum, right? No, Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea, something like that. Okay. Ephesians, they are really good, so we'll just... He's saying a lot of good things about them. Uh, I'm sorry, no. Let me back that up. The Ephesians, he actually warns of... You're about to lose your place. We'll just give them a, th- a down. At the same time, Laodicea is warned about being spit out of his mouth. So they're, they're down. But Smyrna, he has nothing bad to say about them, so they're up. And Philadelphia, ha- he has nothing bad to say about them, so they're up. And then these other three in the middle are all a mix of one sort or another. Scholars will try to say it's sort of a a circular construction. 
or an inclusio. I could get nerdy, but we don't need to do that. Just that this one kind of relates to this one, and this one kind of relates to this one, and you have this middle of all these all these different churches. I don't know to what extent I agree with that entirely, but it's pretty it's pretty close. It seems to bear out pretty well. So we can keep our eye out for that on top of it. So any questions about that stuff before I proceed on to Ephesus? Yeah, Gary? We will get there in just a couple. Why does he write to the angel of the church? We will get to that in a minute. That's a wonderful question. I will attempt to thoroughly muddy those waters and give you no actual answer. (laughs) Any other questions? Okay, we'll go on. All right, so we'll talk about the... uh, We mentioned Ephesus a little bit and the background of the church and will this thing work. Okay, so while that's hard to see, main points I wanted you to know is that it's really big. This is a mountain with a huge amphitheater on it. We'll show you pictures in a minute. And the ancient harbor is just down this long street. And so I've got a picture from about here looking back. So when I show it to you in a minute, you'll know I'm showing you half of the half of ancient Ephesus, basically. But uh, this was a large city. Oh, and you'll see the Temple of Domitian right there next to the main we'll say the rich part of town, and then the not as rich part of town. But um, this is a downward sloping that comes down. I I may have some of that. But it's a large, well-maintained Roman city from antiquity. So this amphitheater here, I forget, could seat at least 25,000 people. It's it's pretty large. and in the summer, it's really hot, in case you've never been to Turkey. It's really hot there. But they'll let you go in and climb all over it and hang out. They, there for a while, they were using it for concerts and stuff, but they stopped that because the vibrations of the, of the bass was shaking it apart. Yeah, I was standing here. This is about halfway, and you can see how tall it is. And then on the back side... Over here is where the other marketplace is, and I'm about halfway from the amphitheater to the harbor. So in our terms, it's not a very large city. In ancient terms, though, this was massive and very, very well-to-do. And they were known... We estimate that there were about half a million people around the time, the end of the first century, which is pretty big. It makes it like top ten city in ancient world around that time. It was famous, especially as the home of Artemis. You see in Acts chapter, I think it's 19, yeah, 19, where they deal, Paul comes in and lots of converts, and the the local idol makers are really upset because Paul is killing their business, and their business is making these things, and this is supposed to be an idol of the lady of Ephesus, usually referred to as Artemis, some syncretization of Artemis and some local deity, fertility deity. And um, Paul was there for a couple of years, like we said. And this was the traditional site of the Apostle John's death and burial. There's still a tomb monument there that claims to be where he was laid to rest. And it was home of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was a temple to Artemis that was built over centuries and centuries, and apparently by around this time, this is of course a reconstru- an artist reconstruction, but was to some extent quite magnificent, rivaling the pyramids to make it on that list. And when nowadays it's like this dirt pit with like one column that's been reconstructed. So I was going to show you that, but because I didn't have anyone standing next, I, I went down there, but I didn't get Marla to take a picture of me standing next to it so you could get an idea of how tall it is. So it would just be a column in the, and it really wouldn't mean anything to you. But this, as creative as it is, probably is more like what you're dealing with. So it's a major urban center that Jesus is speaking to. Some of what he's going to say is pretty astounding when you, when you think about it in that way. 
So that's enough for the background there. Let's take a look at those first two verses. These first two verses, in fact, tie in a couple of the things that Jesus is going to do repeatedly when he's talking to the churches. The first one is the way that he begins all the messages, like we said, is that Jesus commands John to write something to the angel of a church, and then he gives some sort of self-identification, mostly drawn from the first chapter somehow. Or, as I understand it, John has seen all of these things and heard Jesus say these things, and so he can put it when he writes it in chapter 1, and it's a mixture of that and what Jesus actually ta- told him. It gets a little bit, when you try to, di- I could dissect it on a chart, but that'd be too much for now. Anyhow, it's a mix of what John realized after hearing and seeing the whole vision and what Jesus had actually said in the first chapter is what he usually draws from to describe himself. So to get to your question, Gary, who are these angels? Well, they're the stars in Jesus' hand from chapter 1 because he told us that. Does that settle it? (laughs) No, I didn't think so. I didn't think it would. Well, there are really only kind of two ways you can take this in in the broad scheme of things. The word angelos means messenger in common parlance. Or it means angel, which is where we get the word, which is a messenger of God, which is how we get that word. It's it's a direct translation of the Hebrew word for messenger, which they use also in the Old Testament for mean spirit being sent from God to deliver some message, messenger. It's It's a really sticky situation because you're left with either it's a human or it isn't. So if it's a human, many people understand it to mean either a pastor of the church, someone in local leadership or oversight of that church. So he's telling John to send a letter to the local, the guy who's in spiritual oversight directly on the ground there. Or some messenger who's supposed to then take these copies right to the angel of the church, the messenger of the church, these things. And that's, that's corroborated in some respects by the fact that as Jesus is talking to these churches and he's communicating with them, he keeps saying, you did this and you haven't done this and you haven't done this. That makes a lot of sense with a human, but there's still a problem with that because it's not just that human leader who hasn't done it. It's people in the church who haven't done or have done whatever. So it's complicated. So as Jesus addresses someone in the second person singular, he's not just addressing that one person. He's clearly addressing an assembly of people. So is it a single human, a leader, a human leader as a representative? That's hard to say. It's even more difficult because it would be a very unusual New Testament use of the word angelos to mean pastor, teacher, prophet, leader in the local New Testament church. It would be unique. It would be totally off the wall, basically. It would be totally strange. So that's that side of the story. The other side of the story is Jesus is commanding the Apostle John to write a letter to spiritual messengers whose divine job is to send messages. So it sort of works, except for when you ever heard of a human writing a letter to a non-human angel being, and so it gets unusual there. But it makes more sense with the corporate representation. So what do I mean by that? Well, once again, I will turn you to Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 10, we have this interaction between the prophet Daniel and an angel who shows up after Daniel's praying. In chapter 10, verse 20 through 21, Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? The, the angel speaking. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So it appears that an angel is commenting about other angels who help him fight against other angels who are representative heads of groups of people. 
having an angel as a representative head or somehow being a representation in the spiritual realm over a group of people is biblical to one extent or another. So that could help explain it, that each church somehow, just like different nations in the Old Testament period, had angels assigned to them as representative heads who helped fight in the heavenly realms on their behalf, and other evil ones who fought in the heavenly realms against those, like against the nation of Israel. It may be that what Jesus is communicating is that there's a heavenly battle going on, and I want you to be, I'm writing this letter to you, but this letter is also being communicated to the angel who's fighting on your behalf to let them know what you're dealing with and what's coming. Because angels aren't omniscient. So as odd as that may seem, or unusual, that is also the other major interpretation, is that it is an angelic overseer who functions on the behalf of local assemblies, in the spiritual realm to do battle on behalf of the very things they're struggling with. Which I kind of like. I kind of like that interpretation. I've been back and forth. I've told this, Marlon, I've had several discussions over the past few months. I don't know. Who writes a letter to an angel? Does that even make any sense? I don't know. But I've come. it's come to grow on me. Yes? Where do you send it is the key question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which post office do you drop that one off in? Yeah. yeah. It's like, is it like letters to Santa? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Just throw it on the end of the water. Okay. Another another supporting point for it being an actual spirit being angel, as we generally consider the term in Christianity and in Judaism, is Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you, and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. For an angel to tell John, I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets, is kind of an interesting I don't think we often conceive of it in that way, that the angelic host, we think of them often as servants of God, and in that respect, it's clear that we're fellow servants because we're servants of God. But the way this angel says it, make it makes it sound almost like, look, I'm working to do all the things that you on earth are working to do, to keep the same book. I've been working with the prophets for a long time. That sort of, that sort of notion of there's a, there's a collaborative effort between those of us who have fleshly existence and those angelic spirits that don't have fleshly existence, that there's this cooperative mission that's been ongoing since the creation. So that's also why I've finally come down more on the side of it's an actual angel instead of some figurative use of pastor. Does that answer it? I mean, it's not an answer, it's just... Okay. So if it's some human spokesman or messenger on behalf of Christ who... uh, it's If it's a human, then it's some spokesman or messenger on behalf of Christ who will relay his message to the church. If it's angelic, then it's some representative head who fights on behalf of the assembly in the spiritual realm. So those are more or less your options to take with with that. Okay, so in the second half of that, Jesus identifies himself as walking among the seven golden lampstands. And these are the lampstands that are identified in chapter 1. And we didn't really talk about the symbolism that was, that was present there. We did discuss that this is obviously a highly symbolic book. And whatever John saw, he, he saw, but it has symbolic meaning behind it. Jesus is communicating just like when he communicates to him about, uh, in chapter 12, the woman and the dragon and, and all of that that we saw, that it was highly symbolic. We could actually pick apart most of what was going on there fairly clearly and understand. So in the same way, these lampstands are highly symbolic. And Jesus tells us that, they're, that they represent these churches. And as we've discussed, probably all seven of them taken together represent the church universal in some respect. And the idea is that, just like Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. 
A city sit on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Which is one of the primary calls of, of the believing community, is to shine our light so that people will so that we will be a reflection of who God is and of who Christ is and that he Jesus stands in the midst of his church as they are supposed to be on mission doing that we also find out that in revelation 4 1 through 5 when John looks he says after this i looked and behold a door standing open to heaven and the first voice which i had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and i will show you what must take place after this At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of... Okay, Jules, moving on down to the important part, the relevant part. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in garments with golden crowns. There's that 12 by 2 number. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So once again, seven, and we have light, and the word torches there is also translated as lamp. It's lampades in Greek, so it's lamp or torches. It's light. It's a light-giving implement, something that you would put on a lampstand. Quite possibly what we're looking at with this image, Jesus is informing the Ephesians that he is there in their midst as he is in the midst of all the churches, that the churches are supposed to be light-giving implements in the universe and that he's there to tend them and flame them with the Holy Spirit. That he tends them as a priestly officer and rules over them as king. That he is just to pronounce judgment or blessing on them because he is intimately aware of their sufferings and their triumphs being always there in the Spirit. And I'll pause. Questions or comments? Yes, Pastor. I think that's just a good example of how this book interacts with the rest of the Scripture, and in particular, the New Testament repeatedly uses that picture. You you think of Philippians, or of course, Matthew 5, where a lot of the world and so forth, but but this isn't a book that's about something other than what the rest of the New Testament is about. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's that's exactly right. That... uh, John has not departed from the rest of New Testament Revelation when he wrote Revelation. He's right in that line. And his expressions and his thoughts are in that same biblical line. So we'll move on to Jesus' commendation to the Ephesians. Jesus tells the Ephesians that he recognizes all they've done. And in verses 2 and 3, Jesus commends them because they have worked, endured, rejected evildoers, tested false apostles, and not given up on suffering for the name of Jesus. Considering what's going on in Ephesus at the time, all of that, that's a pretty sound commendation. Also in verse 6, they hate the works or deeds or actions or what we might call the practices of some group called the Nicolaitans. Although we don't know for sure who the Nicolaitans were, what they practiced, perhaps they taught some form of sexual sin or integration with the idol worship, we're not entirely sure. The Ephesians were right to reject their behavior and their teachings. The commendation that they received from Jesus sounds really amazing at first, that these people are suffering and enduring, and they are testing people, and they are strong in their beliefs. So I can't imagine any follower of Christ who wouldn't want to hear that part of it. But then comes the rebuke part. Jesus finds fault with the Ephesian church over one thing, and that's that they've left their first love. Now, we're not entirely sure what this means either, that they've left their first love. Lots of people take stabs at it, and we've heard one recently that was good. It's one of the main main interpretations of this. They've left their first love. Here is a church that suffers and endures and can discern wicked men and rejects falsehood, but does not have its first love somehow. Which, to my mind, is kind of a puzzle. They will suffer for the name of Christ and toss out people who claim to be apostles 
and stick by the name of Jesus, and somehow they don't have their first love. Jesus calls them to repent and do the first works. So whatever this first love was directed at or about, it resulted in works that Christ calls those Ephesians back to. Speculation on my part, and I think on a lot of commentators' part as to what this first love is, but perhaps they had developed a culture of doing many good things, in air quotes, good things, without the affection for Christ as their God. They were so accustomed to the truth of their position, and this is all speculation, perhaps they were just so accustomed to the truth of their position and stark contrast to the idols around them that that love of truth had replaced that love of Christ. So that's one common interpretation, is that somehow they had stopped loving Jesus the way that they were supposed to. Another one is that they had stopped loving one another the way they were supposed to. Jesus doesn't tell us which it was here. We don't really know. But it's clear that love of Christ should fuel your actions, should be the impetus behind how a Christian lives and what a Christian does. And so it should remind us in some respects of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. The same communication that Paul gives the Corinthians as a corrective appears on some level to be exactly the corrective that Jesus gives the Ephesians. That you can, you can do all this stuff, endure all this suffering for my name's sake, toss out false apostles on their ear, be doctrinally correct, and not have your first love in the right order, and you are nothing. So whatever the love from which the Ephesians had departed, it was serious enough for the Lord to warn them that judgment was impending. In verse 5, Jesus warns the Ephesian church that he will remove them from having a place in his presence. This is an alarming wake-up call for these people. Despite all of their commendable works, there's an imminent threat of falling so far away from the mission to which Christ had called them that he finds no other action acceptable except for to remove them as a church. If it will not shine the light properly in the world around it, this church will be judged by Christ and lose its place. So whatever, whatever the love was, and I take it to be, on some level, proper affections for Christ. You can do all the, all the suffering you want for your own reasons, and it means nothing. And in fact, it's sin that Jesus calls people to repent of. As with the other messages to the church... The Lord concludes his message to the Ephesians with the two, the two parts, the two of the parts we discussed: the command to hear and obey, followed by a promise to a conqueror, to the conqueror. So, with the formula, "He who has an ear, let him hear." This goes way back to Isaiah and Ezekiel, and Jesus repeats it, especially in Matthew thirteen. So that we understand where John is, well, it's Jesus speaking. And just to show you that this is Jesus speaking like Jesus speaks. And to give some context or some background to why he says things like this, like to the one who has an ear, let him hear. Look at the beginning of Matthew 13 for me. He tells this parable as he's in the midst of a crowd, a parable of the sowers, which I think generally most of us in here would be familiar with. So there's a large crowd. He gets in a boat. He sits down. And the crowd's standing on the beach, so it creates this sort of artificial amphitheater for him to talk across the water and back up from the crowd, and more people can get in and see him. And so he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed some... Seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they weathered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred fold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus' normal way of talking, normal way of calling people to Heed what he's saying. You will notice that he is speaking. Is he speaking straightforwardly or in symbols? 
metaphorically. Is he speaking? He's speaking in symbols. He's using symbols. Like when you're in the midst of this symbolic revelation and you're telling churches things that may be somewhat clear, some parts clear, some parts not so clear, and he's communicating with the, these people and he's trying to get those his followers to respond to him. So then you see after this, then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? His response, to you, my followers, my believers, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Frequently people will think or assume that Jesus told parables to connect with the common man and communicate on a level that this agrarian society would understand. Well, when Jesus is act, he tells the exact opposite. It's because they don't get to hear the truth. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will need to hear, but never under- you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Okay. Jesus' point. Why does he speak like this? Why does he speak like this in Matthew? Why does he speak like this in the Revelation? What does it mean, let the one who has ears hear? Matthew 13 is an important text for understanding the point. Jesus calls the elect to keep his teaching in obedience while knowing that those without ears to hear will be hardened. It's exactly the point of using parables, is to tell the truth to people who are both elect and unelect, and the elect will get it and heed it, and the unelect only heap up more judgment. More of what of the truth that's been exposed to them will actually condemn them further. It will harden them further. Jesus says, so that I can fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah... That with their their ears they can barely hear and their eyes have closed, lest so that they do not see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and turn. I don't want them to turn. So that's kind of scary in some respects because Jesus is coming both in in mercy and in judgment at the same time. When Jesus shows up to his people, and this is what's going on with the Ephesians, he shows up. And the let the one with ears hear is a call to his people to respond. And if you're not responding, guess which group you are in? The ones without ears who are getting more hardened and are already judged. So that's a long way to explain that. But I think it's important to understand that Jesus is speaking to the churches. And he knows that there are people who are not going to respond. And that makes them not his people. Also, with these, with this saying, here, let him who hears, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Also, what we can take away from this is that Christ is saying, what I say to you, Ephesians and church, is what the Spirit says. That Christ is communicating to his corporate people through the Holy Spirit. He and the Spirit are so closely identified that when Christ speaks, when he speaks, it's through the Spirit. What Christ commands are what the Spirit speaks to the church, both global and local assemblies. That it's not coming through another way. And yes, that includes the Bible. Lest someone like throw a Bible at me and say, What about this, Todd? Yes, that includes that the Bible speak that the Holy Spirit is the one who communicates truth even through the Bible to me and you and everybody. Okay. Now to the promise at the end, the promise of that Jesus gives to the one who conquers I will grant to him to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. 
So that promise, it would be hard for anyone who has read the opening part of the Bible, say like the first few chapters of Genesis, to miss the, the relevance there. That in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the tree of life does what? It imparts eternal life. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at, uh, you know, to guard the way to the tree of life. So God has expelled mankind from being able to eat. Now Christ offers to the person who overcomes this eternal life. Tree of life in the Old Testament represents eternal life and unimpeded communion with God. And it's the same thing in Revelation. We have Old Testament point. In the prologue to Revelation, we have John mentioning this point, or, well, Jesus promising fulfillment of that Old Testament point, and then later on in the visionary experience, unpacking that more. So in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, there's twelve again, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Jesus promises eternal life to the one who overcomes. Biblical overcoming, as we discussed last week, does not mean promotions, business success, great wealth, or perfect health. The conqueror is the one who overcomes compromise even in the face of death. The overcoming Christian puts to death sin and shines as a light to the world, marking a contrast between Christ's kingdom and the wicked empires of this age. As a conqueror, he receives from Christ's salvation, the right to be in the presence of God and live forever as a part of his people. Those who are not the people of Jesus should not expect either to overcome or to receive of the promises made to those who conquer temptation, compromise, and sin. Stated succinctly, those who choose sin or fear the rejection of men have chosen the losing side. Each time any of us chooses compromise and sin, we have decided to pick the losing team and thumb our noses at the great victor, capital V, of the universe. So why would a person who lives like that expect to enter the kingdom of heaven? The promise, the conquerors, are those who are true believers, who do what Jesus has called believers to do, which is not worship idols, not compromise with the world, to put to death the sins of the body, and they receive eternal life, just as he's promised in the synoptics over and over again, when he calls himself bread of life, the water of life, and he offers that, which is eternal salvation. What I'm trying to draw out here a little bit is that when the Revelation talks about tree of life, John isn't, John isn't just talking about some far-off consummation eschaton. Yes, that'll be there in some sense, but he's talking about right now. To you, Ephesians, in your church, overcoming is part of the salvific experience. So if you do not overcome, do not expect to inherit salvation. It's a package deal. It's not a workspace deal. But why would you expect to be inheriting the kingdom if you go to temples and sacrifice to idols? Why would you expect that? You've picked the losing side. You know the winner, or you're supposed to have. Do you have ears to hear or not? All right, I've elapsed my time. Questions? Comments? Just one observation. So you were going through that and talking about the point about the Ephesians losing their first love. It reminded me of a couple weeks back when we were hearing the, the stern warning of idolatry and being cut off, being one who is who is at, is at risk of falling in the eternal sense. Um, and, and then, you know, the point you just made about idolatry. Uh, I mean, that's not getting anything other than Jesus, so we've lost our first love if we're 
loving man or loving anything Christ. So, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Good. Good. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, that was one of the things, I'll just share my heart, that was one of the things over the last few months that has really stirred in me from reading Revelation. Todd, anytime you choose to compromise, whether anyone sees it or not, you're picking the loser. And you're walking with the loser. That's pretty dumb. All right. Well, I will pray and we will conclude. Father, I thank you again for your profound mercy that you would include me in what you're doing. Lord, I pray you'd make us lights, Lord. Make our church, make all the churches in this area lights, lights worthy of condemnation, lights free of rebuke. Lord, if we're anywhere close to not doing, not performing the mission you've called us to. And if we're risking losing a place, please make it known to us and give us repentance, Lord. Lord, keep us close. If we've lost our first love, renew us again, Lord. Let us not be guilty before you, but to walk uprightly. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.